What I want to do this morning with our time is I want to continue to think, uh, I, I want us to think about a particular question, and that's this, life after God? Life after God, what does that mean? I want us to think about it, so let's, let's pray. Our Father, we come before you not filled with answers, but hope. You know the longings of our hearts. You know the aches that are spoken and those that are unspoken. Would you meet us by your Spirit and through your Son in ways that provoke and surprise? And would you even give some courage today to believe what they find hard to believe? In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Do you, do you feel it? Right? Do, you, do you feel that nagging in your soul? I know you do. I work with college students, right? I work with you all. This nagging in the soul, the, the desire to, be, to belong, the desire for life to make sense, to have purpose, to be worth living. That longing for relationships, the longing for deep laughter, you might even say that longing for, for meaningful tears. But there's, a, there's another kind of longing in our hearts and in our souls. And this longing comes not so much from sadness, but actually from the pleasures of life. And it can surprise us. You've probably tasted it already in life. It, it comes after that Amazon package arrives, or you drive that car that you were so excited to own, and then before too long you're hit with a surprising sense of a strange kind of emptiness. It can haunt us when you, you finally get that job that you've worked so hard to secure. That spouse that you've been chasing, that child that you longed for. These things you thought would fill your soul and then these wonderful things, these good and glorious things, after receiving them, there's a surprising ache an unease, and an empty place. Those are good and beautiful things, so we're surprised by the sadness. Oscar Wilde, I love this quote, Oscar Wilde, at the end of the 19th century, he wrote this play, and in the play, he has this great line, and he says, there's only two tragedies in life. Only two tragedies in life. Not getting what you want, and getting it. Think about that. That summarizes what I'm trying to get at. The only two tragedies in life is not getting what you want and then getting it and finding that ache, that longing. And so in the midst of these various aches, we try and dull the longings, right? Whether, I don't know if for you it's streaming, you know, endlessly scrolling through social media or keeping yourself ceaselessly, you know, busy with activities, Whatever you can do to try and keep those feelings down. We move from one diversion to the next. But despite our greatest attempts at self-diversion, the, the yearnings often against our will 
surface. And when they do, for some people, they suffocate you. For others, they cause a panic. But sometimes, sometimes people have the courage to look at them and to be open to actually exploring what, most, what, what might be most real, most true, most divine, you might even say most human. Well, I've got 25 minutes now to talk to you, so I wanna, what I want to do is I want to talk about this in two ways. First, I want to talk about missing God. The idea that we miss God in terms of, I want to I actually survey some non-Christian authors that I greatly respect, and I want you to hear some of the things they have to say. And then we will, after we talk about missing God, I want to talk about enjoying God by looking at an ancient author named Augustine. First, let's talk about missing God. I'm a Christian theologian, so my primary job is not to critique non-Christians. I know there's some confusion in evangelical circles these days, but as a theologian, my primary job is not to critique non-Christians. Remember, judgment begins with the house of God, according to Scripture, but it is to present, as faithful as I can, a, a, a vision of the true and living God and what the glory of our faith looks like. But while that's my main task, I do find sometimes that we can be so familiar with our faith that we start to universalize what's not universal. In other words, we start to imagine that everyone sees things in the same way we do. And when that happens, we can miss some of the beauty of the distinctness of our faith. So I want to explore this, right? Because you're aware of this. I think it can be overplayed, but it is true where we're at in Western civilization, kind of the hold Christianity has on the imagination of Western civilization is much less than it did centuries ago in many ways. And one of the nagging questions in our day, and for the last 150 years it's become more and more acute, acute is how do we live in a world that no longer has Christian assumptions. And I want you to hear some of this. So Frederick Nietzsche, some of you in your philosophy classes will have to read some Nietzsche, 19th century brilliant person, and he spent a lot of time critiquing Christians. But I love Nietzsche, and if you're a Christian, I think you should love Nietzsche too. There's a lot to learn from him. Because what is beautiful about him is he's an honest broker. And he doesn't just critique Christians, he actually critiques non-Christians. And, and basically, I'll give you the punchline of where Nietzsche's going with some of these critiques. He basically calls the bluff of non-Christians, himself being one of them. And the bluff is this, basically, you are living on borrowed capital and you're spending what you didn't earn. I want to kind of explain what he means by that. You're spending what you didn't earn. Nietzsche demands honesty, confronts society, and says basically, if God has really gone missing, are we willing to live accordingly? Some of you maybe even know, uh, he, he wrote this famous parable of the madman. It's brilliant especially if you read it slowly and understand what he's doing. But it is in that parable of the madman where he famously says, 
or one of the characters, the madman says, God is dead. And out of context, people think uh, he's making fun of Christians. Actually, there's a lot more going on there in that when he says God is dead, he's actually attacking non-Christians in his European context who believe that their lives have meaning, who believe that they can deal with their guilt and shame, who believe that there is dignity and purpose even though they've gotten rid of the divine. And Nietzsche raises all kinds of questions. A society that dismisses God, according to Nietzsche, no longer, even though it doesn't often realize it, no longer has a basis for understanding, much less receiving concepts like justice, purpose, forgiveness, meaning, and hope. To kind of get all of those benefits is to steal what you didn't earn, what you can't justify. This is partly why Nietzsche's against humility. He's not a fan of humility. Humility is part of the slave mentality. He's just honest. No, 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 no. There's no transcendent source of meaning or morality. You don't need to be humble. You need to actually seek power and use it well. Without question, Nietzsche was ahead of his time. And his thought characterizes much of the world that we live in. We'd want to nuance some of these things, but, but basically the point is that power or the will to power, filling that with this desire for power will not in the end meet those longings and that vacuum created by the absence of God. I wanted to look at a different author, much more contemporary, a guy named Douglas Copeland. Someone gave me his novel, one of his novels, not too long ago. He's a Canadian novelist I hadn't read before, and so I went online to, to read descriptions of him and before going through the book. And the, the journal, The New Criterion, I love this, and this is like 15 years ago when, when being um, hipster was cool. Um, and this is what they said. They said his credentials, his hip, quote-unquote hipster credentials were impeccable. This is a Canadian novelist who's not a Christian, but he wrote a book called Life After God. It's a novel, and it's fascinating. There's all kinds of things I'd like to tell you about the book, but when I got to the second to last page of the novel, I was shocked because this is what the character says. At the end of the book, Life After God by a non-Christian. Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart. I doubt I'll sh I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. And I am sick and I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I can no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me be kind, as I am no longer capable of kindness, to help me love, as I seem beyond being able to love. It's this amazing aha. At the end of this long journey of discovery, the main character comes to this dead end, this, this cul-de-sac, and recognizes this need for something greater, something bigger. 
What do we do? Something truer. I don't know if you've had those moments where you find yourself in a quiet room. Maybe it's in the dorm when you're finally in bed trying to sleep and the nagging aches and the questions come. And you get a moment of uncomfortable clarity in the quietness of that room. What do we do with those aches? Well, most of us turn on another episode of The Office or play another round of Grand Theft Auto. Not against that if you love those things. But we use them to divert ourselves, to numb, to not actually have to address the question. And yet, in the face of this emptiness, maybe it points to a longing for God. What if you actually modify the title of his book, Life After God, and the after, rather than actually pointing to leaving behind, right, or apart from, what if after is about pointing after in terms of a direction? What if life after God isn't how do we live after we've left God behind, but what if it's going in the direction of God, following after God? Maybe that would make more sense of life. Let me give you another one. I love this one. Julian Barnes. I don't know if any of you have read Julian Barnes. He won the Booker Prize in 2011. He's got many honors since then, and he's open, openly agnostic. And he wrote in 2008 a memoir, right, called Nothing to Be Afraid of. And several times in, this in his memoir, he has this line that's stunning. He says this a number of times. He says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And as you read his story, as he reflects on this, he actually reflects how in his 20s, right, imagine, in his early 20s he was an atheist and it was exciting. But he tells the story of how as he got older, by the time he was in his 50s, he was agnostic. Because part of what happened was his growing sense, to use his word, his sense of his ignorance. A growing awareness of how small he was, how small humanity is. You know this as you're learning. The more you learn, the less you realize you know. And all of a sudden, Barnes, to his credit, is honest and realizes, what is a bigger claim to make than to say, you know God doesn't exist and can't? So he became agnostic. And then later in his reflections, he says this, this kind of longing, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He said this, this is his line, missing God is focused for me by missing, watch this, the underlying sense of purpose and belief when confronted with religious art. He'd go to the museums is a well-educated, well-trained. He'd go to the museums, he'd go around the world, and the religious art, he could feel and sense the meaning and purpose, but he's an honest broker, and he knows if there's no God, I don't really, what's the meaning? What's the purpose? What do we do? 
what can make, what, what can it mean for an author like this to say, he doesn't believe in God, but he misses him anyways? It's because he senses without the divine. These are deeply nagging questions about purpose, meaning, dignity. What do you do? Now, I'm not, a, you know, some of you are like, Capic, uh, you're kind of, you're saying that if you're not a Christian, you don't believe in purpose, meaning in life. Uh, I went to a graduation speech and my non-Christian, per, you know, said, I get it. Non-Christians talk about purpose, meaning in life all the time. I'm not naive to that. Any graduation speech talks about it. Well, we don't have the time to unpack it. There are deep philosophical questions about what they're talking about, though. When they proclaim, when, when we proclaim meaning, purpose, and value, from where does it come besides your enthusiasm? Besides your own power? Is it, as one writer calls, actually just sentimentalism? Maybe that's all these things are. They're just sentimentalism. They don't, they're not real, but... They make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. One more, and I love him. Those of you English majors may have read Terry Eagleton. Brilliant. Stunningly good thinker. Wonderful writer. He taught English literature at Oxford and elsewhere for many years. And Eagleton is an unashamed Marxist who is also fascinatingly sympathetic with Christianity. As we could talk all about Eagleton for a long time. But here's what's so great about Eagleton. You can disagree with him on many things, but you can never accuse him of being anything but an honest broker. And he wrote one of his books that I went through recently. is called Culture and the Death of God. And in this, he traces the development of culture over recent centuries. Efforts in the West, particularly, remember this is Marxist, in the West to consistently try and figure out how to organize societies and how to organize individual lives without the presence of God. And he's trying to follow it out. What happens? He talks about how many visionaries have assumed that when you get mature enough, you will mature out of God, right? I mean, maybe some of you are feeling that right now. Like, you were raised in a church, you believe in God, but come on, that's kinderspiel. That's child's play. It's kind of sweet, but let's now be mature Let's be thoughtful. And so the idea was, all of that religion stuff, that's, you know, medieval period, they're kind of immature. Now we're going to be mature. We can organize societies and individual lives without God. And Eagleton, one of his wonderful lines, just said, the Almighty has proved remarkably difficult to dispose of. In his chapter on the limits of the Enlightenment, he observes how all of these efforts to get rid of Christianity and and God in general, people keep trying to get rid of it and yet keep all the good stuff. Things like human dignity or a sense that, that history has meaning. And he basically says you can't separate the good stuff from this inconvenient God. Right? It's not that non-Christians don't have moral intuitions. Go on Twitter. I'm aware. Everybody's outraged about all kinds of things. People have deep convictions. I'm not naive to that. But Eagleton asks, from where do they get them? 
The argument is normally just by empirical observation, just by rationalism, or as Eagleton calls, maybe it's just sentimentalism. But in the end, Eagleton, a Marxist, says it can't answer the question, who defines the good and the true and the beautiful? Where do they come from? And the reason that matters is without a transcendent God, it's amazing how often, and history plays this out, these visions and visionaries end up in power plays that breed oppression and almost inevitably lead to emptiness. So if human life lived best needs to be oriented to the good and the true and the beautiful, we have to admit that humanity alone is incapable of providing the foundation for that. So what do we do? So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about enjoying God, and I want to draw from Augustine, the 4th and 5th century early church father. Because Augustine argued, building on the first epistle of John, where it says God is love, that God is the source, he's the energy, and he's the final object of all love. And Augustine makes this distinction that I'm going to teach it to you. He makes a distinction between what he calls uti and frui. Can you say it? Uti? Frui. That, you guys suck. You can do better than that. Okay, but the reason why I'm teaching you that is a purpose, because when I give you the translations, you will get, it will become harder for you in our day. So Augustine distinguishes between uti, which is use, and frui, which is enjoyment. And Augustine basically argues that God alone is to be enjoyed, frui, and all of creation is to be used. Doesn't that sound terrible? It sounds terrible. The idea of talking about using creation, that grates harshly on our modern ears. It certainly did on mine when I was working through Augustine on this stuff. It sounds, when you talk about using creation, it sounds like you're belittling creation, undermining its significance. But I'll just tell you, I don't think you can so easily dismiss Augustine. I actually think he's getting at something profound that addresses everything I was just talking about. So part of what's happened is you and I live downstream from a guy named Immanuel Kant who had these, uh, these imperatives, but one of his claims, and there's a lot of wisdom to it though, but he would say, don't treat people as means, treat them as ends. That's a fancy way of saying don't be nice to the person down the hall from you so you can date their friend, right? Don't treat people as, as means, treat them as ends, treat them as, as something in and of themselves as the end. So when you hear about Augustine saying, use creation, only enjoy God, that, that does sound problematic to us. But what? See, Kant was working in purely the imminent frame. Kant is working in this world. This is all there is. But to understand what Augustine is doing is, this is not all there is. What if the true and final end of love is never a created object or person, but God himself? What if Augustine is trying to help us understand that, that this is not about loving people less, but actually about elevating people and objects, but in an appropriate way? 
To enjoy something is to enjoy it for its own sake as the final object. Here's exactly Augustine's words. The things, therefore, that are to be enjoyed are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Trinity, the one supreme God. Why? Because God is love. Now, why am I talking about this? this not, like, I don't, how do these things fit together? Because when you claim that God is dead, when we try and get rid of God, the surprise that all of these non-Christian authors I was telling you about are, are, are bumping into, the surprise of getting rid of God is you don't just get rid of the heavenly, but also the earthly. From a Christian perspective, loving our neighbors is a way of loving God. But in the process, it can deepen our love of our neighbors. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, all things are from him, through him, and to him. Right? As wonderful as great gifts from God are, they're gifts to be enjoyed from God. The gifts are to be enjoyed with God, and they're to lead us back to God. And the problem is when we try and make gifts the final end of our pleasure and desire. We're asking them to do what they were never made to do. And this is a, this is a thing that musicians and artists and novelists can intuit, that these things, as good as they are, they're not made to satisfy all of your longings. They're actually made to feed rather than replace our worship for God. Let me conclude by helping us see this. Maybe in a way that's even more relevant for your life. I often hear students and other people say things to me like, I think I love, I'm, I'm engaged, and I think I love this person I'm engaged to too much. You ever heard that kind of thing? I think I love my parents too much. I think I love my, the work of art I created too much. I think I love my car too much. Here's the thing, just so you know, here's the big aha moment that comes from this. You actually can't love too much. You can only love too little or wrongly. I promise you, your problem is not that you love a spouse too much. The problem is not that your parents love you too much and that's why there's dysfunction in the family. The problem is they've tried to make you the end of their love. They've tried to make you satisfy their deepest longings and aches. And so it's distorting that relationship and it's hurting you and it's hurting them. They are made to love you and as they love you to love God. But when you become the end rather than God, it undermines the love. What's needed is not less love, but more love. What's needed is not less beautiful, fantastic artwork, but a recognition that all good and perfect gifts come from him who is above. Creation is meant to foster our delight and worship of God, never to replace it. 
And what happens is you and I, and I, and I know this, is, this, this happens, especially if you're in the church, you look out and you think, that seems a lot better. Maybe it's easier, maybe it's better. And it becomes this temptation to actually try and live on borrowed capital. I'd like to keep meaning and purpose and dignity, but I want to get rid of God. But that is like burning down a house and standing in the ashes and wondering why the rain and the cold won't be kept out any longer. Good things, beautiful things, can't be ultimate things. Love, we have to stop thinking of love like it's something you possess. Love is more like a living stream. It's more like a, a moving river. Leaving God out is not a small problem. It denies the whole thing. It is like, it's like building a dam and then wondering why there's no water coming down from it. No, beloved, Julian Barnes is right. He's right to miss God. Because without God, you don't just lose your Creator. It distorts our relationship to everything else, including ourselves. So next time you feel the ache, whether the ache to belong or the ache that comes from a pleasure that doesn't do all you thought it would do, lift your gaze to God. Because when you do, you will not only find God, but you'll be on the path to being rightly reconciled to all that this God has made. Let's pray. Our good and perfect God, we do thank you that all good gifts come from you, the Father of lights. Would you help us not to demand of your creation what it was never meant to give? Help us to love your creation. Help us to love puppies and sunrises and good meals and the warmth of a hug. Help us to love it all. And let that love take us to you so that we might love you and your creation rightly. And in that, we might be taken home. We might sense how we do belong and the security we have in you. Help us to love more, not less. Give those in this room who are struggling with the courage to believe, give them the courage to believe, not out of fear, but in order that they might love and experience love. It is in the name of the risen and reigning King we pray. Amen.